Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. For Marie, a mother in Norfolk, Massachusetts, finding a school for her autistic son felt like an odyssey without a map. When the boy was in third grade, the local district told Marie that their special ed program couldn't accommodate his aggressive behavior. Several private special ed schools turned him away, and after Marie and her husband finally found a school for their son, he came home one day with bruises on his wrists. There is no Yelp. I can't just go online and say, how is this school rated? There's nothing out there like that. We're talking about putting our child in a school where they may use restraints. Will my child be safe? And you have to pretty much wait and see what happens. It turns out reports of abuse and neglect are widespread at publicly funded private special ed schools in Massachusetts. We'll speak with one of the reporters who's been investigating. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. This podcast is an updated version of episode four, which we called Out at Sea. We'll be back with a brand new episode in two weeks. Meanwhile, I'll be carving up a 16-pound turkey. Coming up in the waters off Tiny Block Island, there might just be the scene of the nation's biggest energy revolution. But first, a report out in August from the Boston-based Disability Law Center found widespread abuse and neglect at a private special education school in Middleborough. It's a town on the southeast corner of Massachusetts. There are worries that the problems seen at Chamberlain International might be more widespread, though. Here's Stan Eichner. He's head litigator at the Law Center. We have a growing concern about students with disabilities across the Commonwealth being severely mistreated. It's our sense that the mistreatment of these youngsters with disabilities is not limited to public or private schools, it's not limited by geography, and we think it's a widespread problem. A few weeks ago, members of the Massachusetts Legislature's Education Committee met for a hearing on oversight of the private special education school system. This comes after WBUR and the investigative journalism unit, The Eye, published a series of reports over the summer looking at allegations of mistreatment. At the hearing, State Education Secretary Jim Pizer said Massachusetts has hired a consulting firm to, quote, do an in-depth assessment of these issues. Reporter Shannon Dooling has been covering this story for us. Shannon, welcome to Next. Thanks, John. So first of all, how many students are we talking about here in the system? So there are about 6,000 publicly funded Massachusetts students in these out-of-district placements at private special ed schools. Um, There are approximately 1,500 out-of-state and international students at these Massachusetts schools, including uh, some students from from all over New England. Um, The schools here in Massachusetts are often referred to as 766 schools. They're named after the state's special ed law, uh, which in fact was the first of its kind in the country. Uh, So basically what that law requires 
If a public school district determines it can't meet the needs of a special ed student, then the district is required by law to pay for an appropriate education elsewhere. And so sometimes that means at these private special ed schools that are outside of the district. Um, so students at these private special ed schools, you know, they can display a wide range of diagnoses, in- including autism, severe anxiety, or depression. Um, we're going to hear right now from James Major. He's the executive director of the Massachusetts Association of 766 Approved Private Schools. Major says students at these schools have complex, severe disabilities, and that can make for a challenging academic environment. They usually have failed repeatedly over and over and over again, and it's been incredibly frustrating uh, for the kid. And our schools really represent the last hope an opportunity for these kids. According to Massachusetts data, the number of special ed students with severe disabilities is increasing dramatically. For example, since 2003, enrollment of students with autism is up more than 300%. The number of students with severe neurological impairments is up almost 150% in the same time frame. Again, here's James Major. The numbers of kids with complex and severe disabilities is increasing in America and in Massachusetts, and and it's increasing dramatically. And it's a real challenge to not only to our members, but to public school districts. So, Shannon, you went looking for people who are trying to find more information about schools just like these. Yeah, that's right. I spoke with many parents who say they wish the process of learning about these private special ed schools was easier. Um, they can't find information about past allegations of mistreatment at schools. It's it's really difficult to find a list of the schools that might be available or, or appropriate for their child. So one of the, the parents that we spoke with, actually, her son attended the Chamberlain International School, which was the subject of the Disability Law Center's latest investigation. We'll hear more about her story uh, coming up next. But first, this is Marie. She lives in Norfolk, Mass. She shared her family's story about searching for a private special ed school for their son. Let's head down to the end of the block so you guys can ride. All right? You can go ahead, bud. Marie's lanky 13-year-old son is cruising around their neighborhood on his razor trike. Marie says it's one of his favorite summer activities. It's kind of the equivalent of an adult big wheel. (laughs) And, um, you know, executive functioning is a challenge, which means that learning to do something like ride a bike is a challenge. We've agreed not to use Marie's last name because of her son's age and to protect his medical privacy. Her son was diagnosed with autism when he was two years old. He also has acute anxiety disorder. Marie began homeschooling her son in the second grade when the combination of academic and social pressures made the public school environment a difficult place for her son to learn. The boy was supposed to begin the third grade at a special ed program in the Norfolk district. But when his behavior became increasingly aggressive, Marie says the school district could no longer accommodate him. The school advised that instead of homeschooling or trying to bring him back into school, they felt it was best that we look for an outplacement. Marie says none of the special ed schools suggested by the Norfolk district were appropriate for her son. She says they either didn't accept students his age or didn't take students with his type of aggressive behavior. At that point, Marie and her husband had to do a lot of their own research, looking online and asking around to other parents. 
After trying one school, they ultimately pulled their son when he came home with bruising around his wrists. They began searching again. There is no Yelp. I can't just go online and say, how is this school rated? There's nothing out there like that. We're talking about putting our child in a school where they may use restraints. And, you know, it was very hard to find out information. Have there been any incidents with any of the children who have been put in restraints? Will my child be safe? And you have to pretty much wait and see what happens. The mother of a former Chamberlain International School student says she also could have used more information about private special ed schools. Jacqueline Dinan from Pembroke, New Hampshire, says she wishes she'd had access to information about Chamberlain's record of mistreatment before she sent her son to the school in 2014. Dinan says she now counts her 13-year-old son among those cases of mistreatment. She says her son experienced a traumatic altercation with a female staff member at Chamberlain. Dinan's son told her over the phone what he alleged the staff member said. He said that she said, when you're older and you're in prison, you're not going to be able to speak because you're going to have a dick in your mouth. Dinan says her son was also sexually harassed by older students, was excessively restrained by staff, and even slapped in the face. I don't think that one instance of neglect or a single incident of abuse means you it's not a good school. But if there's a report every day, you know, I want to know. It would have saved my son a lot of time. You know, I would have picked a different school for him. In addition to the report recently released documenting abuse and neglect at the Chamberlain School, the Disability Law Center earlier this year reported that it found examples of neglect by staff at the Evergreen Center, a private special ed school in Milford, Mass. The Evergreen Center says it cooperated fully with the law center in addressing its concerns, and the DLC closed the investigation last month. And Stan Eichner, head litigator at the Law Center, says the problem isn't confined to private special ed schools. They also found serious mistreatment at the public Peck School in Holyoke, Mass. Eichner says the mistreatment of students at the Peck School was startling. Students were mistreated by very large staff members. One student had been restrained again and, you know, many dozens of times. Many of the students had sustained physical injuries. It was just awful. In a statement, Dr. Stephen Dreich, the receiver of the Holyoke School District, says staff at the Peck School are receiving additional training, and there's been a steady decrease in the use of restraints in the program. Dreich says the school continues to cooperate with the law center. But at the private Eagleton School in Great Barrington, Mass., state licensing agencies found the culture of abuse to be beyond repair. The all-boys residential school was put on probation in February in response to allegations of staff punching students, refusing medical treatment, and verbally abusing the boys and young men. State regulators revoked the school's licenses in March, and the facility closed in April. Seventeen former Eagleton staffers now face criminal charges. Eichner says that school may be a reflection of a larger trend. Eagleton represents the state to some extent, waking up and saying, okay, we have to really do something. There are big, big problems there. Too many vulnerable students were subjected to conditions that weren't vigorously overseen or monitored by the state. That was perhaps a watershed moment. 
In New Hampshire, the Lakeview School in Effingham was perhaps the watershed moment for state regulators there. Lakeview is still having a ripple effect in this state. Karen Rosenberg is a senior staff attorney at the Disability Rights Center in Concord, New Hampshire. She was the lead attorney on the center's investigation into Lakeview. Providers of special education are acutely aware of what happened at Lakeview, and the Department of Education really especially should be commended for how swiftly they moved in. The center's 2014 report documented many cases of abuse and neglect at the Neuro Rehabilitation Center and private special ed school. That included the death in 2012 of a 22-year-old man who likely died of neglect. After being placed on probation by the New Hampshire Department of Education, the school's license was eventually revoked, and the special ed school was closed in April of 2015. Let's see. That's the talent show. Oh, the talent show. That's right. Love the talent show. We did a music video, and I was also included in student council. That's me right there. Back in Norfolk, Mass., flipping through her son's yearbook, it seems Marie and her husband did ultimately choose a great fit for their son. But Marie says it was a difficult road, and she's hopeful that maybe her family's experience can make it easier on other children. Maybe I can point somebody in the direction of saying, this is how you find out about a school. These are the questions you want to ask when you go. You want to consider distance. These are your child's rights. Right now, there's not enough of that that goes on. And everybody's kind of in their own little silo. You know, we're all walking through the same maze, but we're not walking together. And while state agencies are working to improve communication and break down some of those silos, it remains difficult to know exactly what's waiting at the end of that maze. That's Shannon Dooling from WBUR reporting. She was working in conjunction with the investigative reporting team at The Eye. She's back with us now. First of all, Shannon, what can you tell us about the allegations against the Chamberlain School in Massachusetts? So the allegations really centered around repeated findings of the school's inability to protect students from self-harm and from student suicide attempts. Staff were really, in some instances, using restraints excessively. So that could mean that they were either excessively rough with a student or perhaps they kept the student in that restraint for an excessive amount of time. So what is the state of Massachusetts doing about this? Did you get any reaction from education officials or child welfare officials? Yeah, we did. So Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, uh, as well as the state licensing agencies, say that they're all taking these findings seriously um, and they're reviewing the details of the report. But even before the results of the Chamberlain investigation were released, we talked with Maria Mosides. Uh, She's the director of the State Office of the Child Advocate. She told us that they hope to learn from difficult cases like the ones we heard about in the story. Uh, Let's hear from Mosides. I think the population of children that are now in these schools represent more acute cases than ever before. And so it is a good time to look at the protocols and say, Are these sufficient to protect the children who are currently in these schools? And she says part of that includes interagency communication, particularly when it comes to sharing reports of abuse and neglect documented at residential schools. You've been investigating Massachusetts schools, but it's not the only state that serves public school students in private special ed schools, right? 
That's right. Every state has its own way of meeting the requirements of the federal special ed law. It's called IDEA, which again requires that students with disabilities be given a free and appropriate education in the least restrictive setting possible. So once a determination is made that a student can't be adequately served in a public school for whatever reason, then these private special ed schools come into play. Um, In Maine, for instance, the equivalent to these quote, 766 schools in Massachusetts are referred to as private special purpose schools. In Vermont, uh, students needing to look outside of a public school may be placed at what are referred to as independent schools. And the tuition, which can range from $100,000 to $300,000 at these schools, is generally paid for by the district. Um, So that's pretty expensive. It is pretty expensive, and there are different schools of thought as to whether or not putting that money back into a school district would be a better investment, but um, that's, a, I guess, another story for another time. What sort of reaction did you get from, from listeners and people who read your story uh, from around the Boston area? I, you know, it's it's interesting in reporting the story, and then after the story aired and and was published, um, we heard from a lot of people who, who quite frankly thanked us for bringing some attention to this issue, uh, saying, you know, that that comment from from Marie that we hear that there's no Yelp for schools like this. We just want a central database that we can go to, to find out what are the allegations against this school, what was decided, what you know, what corrective action was put into place. Uh, so that was a that was a big echoing comment throughout the. Throughout the feedback, I would say also that a number of people were also just sort of inquiring about what's the solution. Um, so, so what's next? How's the state going to work to in, improve this uh, this oversight? And you know, we'll we'll continue to follow up um, with the state and with with the agencies here in Massachusetts that do the licensing and the oversight uh, to to hold them to that and see what plans they have. If you'd like to read more on Shannon Dooling's reporting project on special education with WBUR News and the I, go to nextnewengland.org. Thanks so much, Shannon. Thank you, John. Coming up, the nation's first offshore wind farm is about to get up and running off the coast of Rhode Island. This is next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The five turbines off the coast of Rhode Island that make up our country's first offshore wind farm are set to begin operation before the end of the month. Deepwater Wind VP Matt Morrissey led a recent tour of the facility just southeast of Block Island, and he talked to WBUR. This is the sound of capacity. In the Rhode Island, Massachusetts wind energy area, the wind is as strong as any wind resource anywhere in the world. The Block Island project is likely just the beginning for New England offshore wind power. A law signed by Governor Charlie Baker in August requires Massachusetts utilities to buy 1,600 megawatts of electricity generated from offshore wind by 2026. Deepwater Wind and other developers have leased 750,000 acres of ocean, 18 miles off the Massachusetts coast, that's intended for wind farms. Matt Morrissey says wind power will create jobs. We will partner with community colleges, with vocational high schools, with companies like GE to develop training programs to train local workers to force the new industry in the United States to move forward. So we wanted to find out more about how offshore wind might fit into New England's energy mix and whether there's a movement toward the types of massive wind turbine complexes currently powering large parts of Europe. 
So we talked to Greg Cunningham, an environmental lawyer with the Conservation Law Foundation. We reached him at the studios of Maine Public Radio back in August. Greg Cunningham, welcome to Next. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. So talk about the notion that a wind farm like this that's sited close to an island where it's hard to get electricity, that the island is going to be the, the first beneficiaries of this, but the energy is also going to go to the rest of the grid. So the people of Block Island will have, in essence, first dibs on electricity generated by the facility. It will, however, with some frequency, generate more electricity than is needed by the islanders. And as a result, unused energy will be exported on the grid. Those electrons will be delivered on a cable that will run under the Atlantic Ocean and to the mainland, where it will be transmitted directly into our larger regional transmission grid. Of course, there are times when the wind doesn't blow and you're going to have to go to some secondary fuel source. Do you ever really get rid of the secondary fuel source, whether it's it's diesel or, or gas or something else, when you rely so heavily on intermittent um, renewable like wind? It depends. Uh, the geographic distribution of these kinds of resources matters. Here in New England, we have begun to develop these wind resources, these solar resources, but our public policies haven't gotten enough of it built. And what we need to do is emphasize in our markets and in our politics the need for clean energy that can be distributed throughout the region, that can be supplemented from outside of the region. And that combination of resources could supply a substantial amount of our electricity over time. I want to pull apart a few of the reasons why we don't have more renewables generating electricity here in New England. One of them is public policies, which I want to talk to you more about. But one of them has to do with just the availability of a resource like wind. I've been looking at some heat maps, they call them, of various places across the country where you can see more wind as a resource versus less wind as a resource. And as you look across New England, there's certainly a coastal band, and then there's a, a bit in inland northern New England, but an awful lot of our region just doesn't seem very good for, for wind at all. Do I have that right? The northern portions of our region tend to be where the wind resource is located or off of our coasts. So we have in New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, fairly significant opportunities for the build-out of new wind. We have massive opportunities off of our coast. Dong Energy just established an office in Boston, and it did so with the intention of developing offshore wind off of New England, and it would like to do so off of all of our states. They have a lease off of the state of Massachusetts. They're contemplating what may be as many as 10,000 megawatts of wind offshore. This is a significant contribution to a grid that currently accommodates about 30 to 35,000 megawatts of total power. So to inject over the next several years an additional 33% of energy that is entirely fuel-free could be really a game-changer for the region. So you're saying that especially offshore wind as a resource is something that New England could potentially have in abundance, but we don't have the public policy right now to allow for it. So in your mind, what are the barriers? 
I think I would rephrase that to say we historically have not had the public policies. We made some breakthroughs, frankly, in the last several weeks with the state of Massachusetts legislature passing its omnibus energy bill, which includes authorization for the state to invest in up to 1,600 megawatts of offshore wind. That investment is designed to take place over the next 10 years, and it could significantly contribute to an industry that really needs a degree of scale in order to bring down the costs. We have numerous states within the region that haven't acted. We have the state of Maine that, frankly, has acted in in fashions that have undermined the public policies where we established opportunities. Uh, Statoil sought to take advantage of that opportunity, came to Maine, looked to develop a pilot project not unlike the Deepwater Wind project, was making progress. And thanks to Governor LePage and his PUC appointees, they entirely undermined the contract that had been entered into and Statoil walked away from Maine. Sadly, leaving behind not only clean energy opportunities, but business development opportunities. But of course, of the various public policy decisions that states have made regarding siting wind projects, it's not just the one that you're talking about in Maine. It also has to do with, frankly, what a lot of us call nimbyism, you know, just not wanting to see a big uh, wind tower in my backyard or getting in the way of the view that I have. That was certainly one of the issues when the Cape Wind Project off of Cape Cod met its demise, if you will. I mean, is that another big piece of it, that people just don't want to see these wind towers? It is a piece of it. You referenced Cape Wind, which is a a great example, a case that took 10 years with lots of money spent by well-intentioned investors. And ultimately, The project failed, but it taught us so many lessons. Uh, And one of those was that when citing a project, having that homework done up front uh, makes an immeasurable difference. Our federal government has stepped up and engaged in a fair amount of that kind of uh, pre-permitting analysis and has identified specific areas where offshore wind is best located. I'm wondering how far offshore we could think about going so that we would alleviate some of the problems that people have with seeing these turbines in, in, the, in their view uh, next to their very high-priced properties along the New England coastline. Hmm. This is the real quandary because the further offshore you locate them, the longer your cable needs to be, the more infrastructure you need in place uh, to transmit that energy. And as a result, the higher the cost. And so there really needs to be a balance struck between what impacts we'll feel visually and what impacts we'll feel economically. How does the cost of offshore wind compare right now to, say, the cost of nuclear power or uh, getting your power from natural gas or, or even oil or solar? Can you give us a little breakdown about what the costs are like right now and maybe what they might be in the future? I would start by suggesting it's it's not the fairest of questions because this is a, a nascent industry. And again, the costs associated with any form of energy development really relate to the supply chains, the manufacturing chains. And when you don't yet have those in place in this country, with that said, it is anticipated that the cost of offshore wind 
developed off the coast of Massachusetts will be somewhere in the range of 8 to potentially 12 to 14 cents per kilowatt hour. The cost of onshore wind has generally of late been somewhere in the 4 to 10 kilowatt hour price range. And you would find that the cost of a natural gas generator is probably in the in the lower end of that scale. Nuclear is toward the middle, the higher end of that scale. So offshore wind is not yet price competitive. Onshore wind absolutely is. Solar power increasingly is. Uh, nuclear power generally is not to develop a, a new nuclear facility, which is not something that's currently contemplated in New England. This Block Island project is admittedly pretty small, but what does it mean to you that it's the first of its kind in the country? It's invaluable. It is a breakthrough that I think without it probably would not have allowed for this new legislation in Massachusetts that we hope will lead to you know, scores of other projects. And so not only is Deepwater Wind going to prove the concept, but it also is a company that is prepared to take on the next several stages of offshore wind development. Of course, there's the business community and what they think about projects like this, whether they can make money at the moving forward. But of course, the United States in this region is under some some pretty important mandates from the federal government and self-imposed mandates as well. I mean, how much of this has to do with with regulation and goal setting and how much of it has to do with the market deciding that wind is the thing that we need? Well, in New England, the public policies and frankly, some of the legal mandates that come out of those public policies should be fairly influential in the process. And I'll give you an example. The state of Massachusetts has the 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 goal that I alluded to earlier. But they've gone beyond that. In their Global Warming Solutions Act, they've actually mandated that their regulatory decisions have to be consistent with that reduction. And so every time their government acts, they need to be assessing whether it is consistent with 80% by 2050. We have, on more than one occasion, uh, intervened in proceedings where we have held them to that standard, and we intend to continue to do so. So the state of Massachusetts, which, by the way, represents almost 50% of electrical demand in New England, is going to be leading the way because it has a legal mandate to do so. That ought to help these industries that are in their infancy to develop, and that includes not only offshore wind, but, for example, Energy storage, battery development will benefit from the very responsible legal mandate that Massachusetts has imposed upon itself. Greg, how much of your time do you spend hopeful and encouraged about this? And how much of your time do you spend kind of beating your head against the wall, wondering why we can't move faster? It's it's admittedly probably a 50-50 split. Um, and I am forever reminding myself uh, when the pessimistic half takes over of the advancements that we've made. I sat, for example, at a dinner with a group of uh, executives of, of major employers in the greater Boston area recently in which they described to me 
their company's internal plans to become 100% renewable by 2030. These are big companies with significant budgets, large employee bases, and they are committing themselves to goals that well exceed what our government is committing us to. That gives me great hope. Greg Cunningham, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Now, one of the concerns about offshore wind has been the impact on the environment, not just on birds, but also fish that swim nearby. A small crew of fishermen has been working with scientists to gather data and learn how fishing will or won't change around the Block Island turbines. Rhode Island Public Radio's Ambar Espinosa has our story. Every month for the past four and a half years, Captain Rodman Sykes has sailed out to Block Island Sound with his crew and a small group of scientists. They tow a fishnet and scrape the seafloor twice in three different locations, within the area of the Block Island wind farm and in areas close to it for reference. Sykes stands over the fish to inspect them each time his crew brings up the net and releases the catch. Mostly skates, there's a sea bass, a few small scum, sea robins, dogfish, not much else, but a good sample. So we'll go on to the next station. While Sykes redirects his vessel to the next sampling area, scientists get right to work, sorting fish by species, winter skate, taking their weight and measuring their length. 35 and a half. They also take samples of what's in the stomachs of fish sought after by recreational fishermen. Together, these scientists and fishermen make up the research team hired by Deepwater Wind to collect data to understand the wind farm's impacts on fish and shellfish. Sykes says at first, that didn't sit well with a small group of fishermen. I had guys question me about why are you working for the wind farm. I told them I'm not working for the wind farm, I'm working for the fishing community. Deepwater Wind hired fishermen to be a part of this research survey to get their buy-in. It worked. Sykes thinks this partnership between scientists and local fishermen is important. We don't want some out-of-state boat. We don't want a government or state boat doing it. We need one of our boats to do it, to have the trust of the fishermen. As a longtime commercial fisherman for nearly 50 years, he knows these waters well. Fishermen respect him, so he's kind of like the fishing community's eyes and ears on this project. Drew Carey is a lead scientist for Inspire Environmental, the firm overseeing the fish survey. The firm tapped into the expertise of local fishermen to design the study, to learn where they drag their nets, how fish move in the area, and what kinds of concerns they have. But we also designed a very robust scientific study so that both the regulators and the academic scientists would be satisfied that the results from the first offshore wind farm in the nation could be useful and applied to a lot of other uh, projects that are on the drawing board right now. Carrie says they collected data during the most disruptive construction periods. He and Sykes both say they haven't seen anything that indicates negative changes to fish and lobster populations around the turbines. It's too early to see trends, but the turbine foundations have already become artificial reefs. On another boat that gave a tour of the offshore wind farm this summer, Grover Fugate with the Rhode Island Coastal Resources Management Council told visitors the foundations the turbines sit on have about an inch and a half layer of mussels that are attracting more fish. We were out here several times with the work crews and you put the fish finders on and you can see these column of fish up and down underneath the towers. 
The other interesting thing is, speaking to some of the fishermen, is that the fish species that you see under each tower tend to differ. So it seems like each tower has its own little community that's a little different than the others. Some fishermen are still skeptical. Back on the boat where fish data are being gathered, Anthony Ponte is one of them. He too hasn't seen any negative impact so far. But you don't know what's going to happen once electricity starts flowing through the wires. And Rodman Sykes, the captain of this boat, adds fishermen feel like there are still a lot of unknowns about how a new energy industry will affect theirs. And this, of course, is only the beginning. If this works out, there's just going to be more and more and more. How much of the ocean are they going to take away from us? We've basically had the ocean to ourselves for forever, and now the ocean is starting to be divided up. And that's a hard thing to accept, but you got to uh, realize that someday somebody's going to say, wait a minute, I want some of that. You know? <laughs> this research project that Sykes is a part of will continue to gather data for two years while the Block Island wind farm is in operation. That ought to give Rhode Island and other states a better understanding of what fishing impacts to expect from an emerging offshore wind industry. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ambar Espinosa. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraska. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Richard Chacon, John Keimel, and Marquise Neal. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. Thank you.